Night falls over the great house. Within, troubled thoughts are interrupted by the distant wailing of what some believe are the restless spirits of the widows who keep vigil at the edge of the high cliff, eternally weeping for their lost husbands. Late into the night, their keening can be heard, which of course can only mean that there will soon be terror at Collinwood. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, the accursed doppelganger of Penny Dreadful. And before we get started with today's show featuring the wonderful Patrick McRae and our discussion about the new Dark Shadows Daybook, Unbound, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, you should definitely grab the Kindle version and the hard copy will be coming out soon. It's available now on Amazon. We'll be talking all about the Dark Shadows Daybook, Unbound. But there are a lot of other things I want to tell you about before we get to that. A lot of cool things that are available, uh, interesting things happening. First of all, Night is Falling, Volume 1, the graphic novel being kickstarted right now. There's a Kickstarter campaign going on and the delightful Barry and Karen Dodd, who are passionate creators, are the masterminds behind this great comic book. Uh, Night is Falling is described as Scooby-Doo meets Salem's Lot in this spooky tale set in 1970s New England. Uh, I met Barry and Karen uh, a while back over at uh, the Coast City Comic Con. Um, Barry was the moderator for the panel with Sharon Smith Lenz, who played Sarah Collins in Dark Shadows. And of course, Barry directed the short film On a Country Road, which starred Sharon. And uh, I got to hang out with Barry and Karen and spend more time with them at Seaview Terrace over at Collinwood back in October. And they were kind enough to give me issue one of their amazingly cool comic, Night is Falling. Be sure to support their Kickstarter campaign for the graphic novel release. Uh, Thus far, it looks like it's doing really well. Uh, If you are listening, to this while the Kickstarter is going on uh, as of this recording. It is the end of January, but I think it's going to be going for the next 30 days or so. I'll put a link to their Facebook page and also to the Kickstarter in the show notes. More cool literature for you. The new edition of the Dracula book from bestseller to media superstar by Donald F. Glute is now available. And of course, you heard the legendary Donald Glute here on this podcast. The things Don has seen and done, I I mean, you can uh, check out episode 30 of Terror at Collinwood to hear my conversation with Donald F. Glute, who has some really cool stories to tell. And the Dracula book was originally released in 1975. It's an Anne Radcliffe award-winning book, uh, and this is the new edition of the book. As an exhaustive and comprehensive and in-depth survey of the Dracula character as he appears throughout history and in all media to the present day, this book is without peer. Extremely detailed, well-researched, and generously illustrated with black and white photos, some quite rare, a landmark in documenting the horror genre. In addition, there is a 50-page author's afterword with dozens of additional never-before-seen and rarely-seen photos and posters, and there's even an admirable and well-thought-out attempt to untangle Angelique's complicated dark
Dark Shadows timeline. Uh, Don is a big Dark Shadows fan, and he talks about Dark Shadows in the main body of the book, but in the afterword, he has a really interesting analysis of Angelique's uh, timeline, which is, uh, if you've watched uh, Dark Shadows, is very complicated and can be difficult to understand. So Don uh, actually writes a very compelling piece in his afterword where he looks at that. So I will post a link to the Amazon page in the show notes. And the exciting news continues. The National Arts Club celebrates the centenary of the birth of the world's most famous mime, Marcel Marceau, with an exhibition of photographs taken by Time Life photographer Ben Martin. The exhibit, which is open to the public and free, will take place from March 9th to April 28th in conjunction with the publication of a new edition of Marcel Marceau, Master of Mime, a photojournalist's view of the legendary artist as performer and friend. Catherine Lee Scott, Ben Martin's wife of many years and publishing partner until his death, dreamed of reissuing the book. She says, Marcel offered to write an introduction to a new edition, but passed away before we could make it happen. The dream was reawakened in early 2018 when I got in touch with Anne Sicko, Marcel's widow, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, the two of us began discussing the possibility of an exhibit of the photographs and a new edition of the book to commemorate the centenary of Marcel's birth, March 22nd, 2023. For us, it's a tribute that honors the legacies of both men and their artistic collaboration. The National Arts Club is located at 15 Gramercy Park, South New York, New York. And I'll put a link to the National Arts Club in the show notes. And uh, that's not all, folks. Daytime Gothic, you've heard me mention it before, and it's available right now. You can order it online. It's a full-color charity magazine celebrating dark shadows with 130 pages of features interviews, rare photographs, artwork, fiction, and humor. Some of the highlights include Lara Parker relives a typical day on the set, Nancy Barrett recalls life as Carolyn Stoddard, Catherine Lee Scott pays tribute to co-star Mitch Ryan, Matthew Hall discusses his parents Grayson and Sam Hall sharing previously unpublished family photos, Eric Wallace, showrunner of The Flash, reveals how Dark Shadows taught him everything he needed to know about writing for TV, Mark B. Perry discusses Dark Shadows reincarnation, his proposed revival series, how Barnabas Collins spoke to a generation of gay fans, the classic movies that made Dark Shadows, the saga of 2000's soap spinoff Port Charles, another soap that tried to recapture Dark Shadows as supernatural magic, and that was written by my friend Rachel Freitas, who you heard in episode three of this podcast. We discussed the Phoenix storyline, so congrats to Rachel. I look forward to reading your article, my dear. And uh, we have a comic strip by Brett M. Herholtz. Uh, we have an article, The Unsung Heroes of Dark Shadows, and there's a, I believe there's a piece on Lego Dark Shadows, the Lego Collinwood uh, drawing room and foyer uh, by Madeline Marks, who I met at Seaview Terrace, and uh, the Lego Collinwood is astounding, uh, and all the little minifigures that represent each era of Dark Shadows must be seen to be believed, and uh, I'm sure you will not be disappointed when you see that. And I wrote a piece for the zine as well, uh, Gothic Steals for Fun, Profit, or Storyline Inspiration. It features 10 Gothic tales that could have been used in Dark Shadows had the series continued past April 1971. And there's much more than that. There's The House, which is uh, some fan fiction. So I'm just looking quickly over the table of contents, and this looks absolutely sensational. Stuart, of course, is a professional graphic designer, 
professional writer and he's done some incredible things uh, in his career and of course he used to publish the Dark Shadows Journal fanzine in the UK. Lots of lots of great stuff. When you've heard the interview with Stuart uh, on the podcast before and it's the way it looks this is like indistinguishable from something you would buy on a magazine stand and I'm sure it'll be even superior to that. It looks absolutely fantastic and uh, best part proceeds from daytime gothic will benefit macmillan cancer uk it's edited by Stuart manning format is full color 16.5 by 24 centimeters and perfect bound so you're looking at a very slick nice looking publication here and it's for a good cause so i will put a link in the show notes to the order page for the magazine and last but certainly not least i received such a nice gift in the mail from jeff carlson at maniac monsters very thoughtfully sent me these really cool Barnabas pins and stickers, which I just absolutely love. I love stuff like this. I always say there should be more Dark Shadows merchandise out there. This is awesome. I love this kind of stuff. You can get yours as well as lots more amazing monster stuff like t-shirts, stickers, buttons, and more at mani-yakmonsters.com. I will post a link in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jeff, uh, for sending this to me. I love this stuff. Jeff is an illustrator, so he designed all of these things that he has on his website. Great t-shirts, retro style stuff, you know, like, uh, I, I love it. So uh, thank you very much for that, Jeff. And I think that's all the news I have to offer. We, we had a lot today, but you're going to be hearing some more great news. And that's all about Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound with the one and only Patrick McRae. So stay tuned for that because Patrick is my spectral guest tonight. There's nowhere to run. There's no place to hide. This podcast is fun, but there are spoilers inside. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. Tis I, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I am very excited to welcome my guest today, returning to Terror at Collinwood to discuss his new Dark Shadows Daybook, Unbound, and to just shoot the breeze with me because I miss him, is Rondo Award-winning writer Patrick McRae in a feat worthy of the Guinness Book of World Records, Patrick once watched all 1,225 episodes of Dark Shadows in only 45 days. He's a member of the Collinsport Historical Society staff, and prior to earning his MFA in stage directing, Patrick helped launch Babylon 5 in the art department and was a comic book author for Revolutionary Comics, creating the underground cult hit Elvis Shrugged. He later wrote top-selling biographies of Betty White, Jack Dorsey, Britney Spears, and Elvis Presley. Having directed over 80 stage plays, he also co-produced and co-starred in the lauded audio series Star Trek The Continuing Mission. He's been writing the Dark Shadows Daybook since 2016, run winning the 2018 Rondo Award for Writer of the Year. As a webmaster, you can see his work at katherineleescott.com. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. It's worthy of Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> the late the late great gilbert godfrey god bless him how are you i'm good i'm good thank you good. yeah just keep keeping busy hanging in there uh just plugging away at the podcast and uh busy just busy doing back in classes teaching my classes again i'm teaching a couple of cl courses on poe and lovecraft which uh Ooh. should be pretty fun so yeah now have you, i got i i will completely commandeer this and take this in, in the wrong direction have you seen this <laughs> netflix thing this uh this thing with christian bale i saw the trailer for it but i i haven't watched it yet my sister started watching it and she she digs it have you seen it uh i tried 
Yeah. I, yeah. I like that Jeffrey Combs thing that they did on the uh, horror masters of horror. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was good enough for me. Yeah. Unless, unless you have, you know, Peter Laurie with wings <laughs> at one point, I just, you know, yeah. it's, it's not quite Poe. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Peter Laurie is, is a necessary component. Uh, absolutely. Um, but yeah. How about you? How are you? How have you been? I'm fine. I'm I'm exhausted. Uh, you <laughs> With know, good I mean, reason. We got, yeah, <laughs> we got the book out, and um, and that's been really exciting. It it was a much more fulfilling book in a lot of ways to put together than the than the first book, and I like the first book. Uh, and at the same time, I've been working on the audio book, uh, which is read by a brilliant, brilliant reader named Mary Johnson. Uh, and, um, I, if you want, I mean, get you a sample or something. Oh, she's hilarious. She is, <laughs> she's really funny. And it's, it's kind of like a cross between, uh, NPR and, uh, and, and SCTV, classic SCTV. Her <laughs> I love that mashup. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Episode 922. When Amanda Harris has a long delayed date with death, Julia learns that the best is yet to come. Werewolf, Alex Stevens. Grant Douglas investigates the Tate House, only to confront and promptly punch a werewolf. The werewolf flees and encounters Amanda Harris, who then confesses to Julia about her past. Spurred by Quentin in 1897 New York, on a really impressionistic bridge set, she tried to leap to her death after being greeted by an aging dandy named Mr. Best. Going unconscious, Amanda wakes up in a strange, otherworldly hotel lobby called the Stopping Off Place. Mr. Best agrees to keep her young until a day on which she is destined to die. She needs to find Quentin first. Decades later, she is still young. As she finishes telling all to Julia, a knock on the door reveals, you guessed it, Mr. Best. There is so much going on in episode 922 that you would need the combined powers of all of Craigslist to unpack it. I mean it. And it has more zen implications than a kung fu reunion movie right here. This minor storyline? Oh, this old thing, you ask? Why are you making a big deal out of that? Aren't we just waiting for Christopher Pennock to show up? Well, cosmically, we always are. But let's focus on Dark Shadows. Mr. Pennock will be glad that there will be actual, serious, zen material later in the article. But I gotta talk about my vampire stories first. This segment is easy to write off because it doesn't really feel connected to anything as important as the Barnabas Josette Angelique core story. It all kind of loiters at the beginning of a Leviathan storyline that will still be going on bafflingly months from now. Maybe it's easy to write it off because while its story elements are more interesting than anything else going on, the show's treatment of them feels almost dismissive at best. Yes, I realize that they are in a hurry to get Quentin back, but once they do, they don't seem to know what to do with him. I mean it, but not here, in the stopping off place. Because here, dueling with Mr. Best, he has a purpose, and his immortality gives him the unique sparring partner that only an anthropomorphized death could really be. Unfortunately, this is almost a case of, what if someone gave a storyline and nobody showed up? Like the prior episode, Quentin, Chris, and the foppish android, this is a great idea, with so little airtime and arc impact that I have to remind myself that it happened. 
I need to consider this essay to be my permanent post-it. There's a huge question lurking in and around this episode, and that's, who's in charge? In a little over a year, we've met three contenders for the ultimate boss of evil in the DSU, and it can be debated which are the puppets and who is the hand. Bachelor number one runs an immense operation of punishment, demons, and gothic office furniture. He likes the music of J.S. Bach, blonde women, and dominating the world through an army descended from the union of reanimated cadavers. Give a sunny Burbank welcome to Diabolos. Bachelor number two is already hooked up, but looking for a third. He and his partner may be snakes in the grass, but that's only because these nature lovers predate time itself, and they wish to bring about the rebirth of an ageless serpent god to consume the planet. Heads of an immense secret cult of powerful publishers and ludicrous fur coat-wearing hipsters get out the heat lamps for Oberon and Haza. Bachelor number three is the special guest star of this episode, a smooth-talking man about town. He loves fine suits, friendly wagers, and a view from the bridge. Drop in at his saloon, the stopping-off place, and don't be in a hurry when you say hello to the original lady killer. Won't you find out why they all call him Mr. Best? Who actually runs Bartertown? I'd like to say that my money is on the caretaker, but I think I can build a more solid case for Mr. Best. Why? It's a process of elimination and of limits. Oberon and Haza are much like Diabolos. All three are obsessed with ruling the world. When you have an entire universe of planets to meddle with, wanting to rule these balding and squabbling apes seems a tad unambitious. I guess it's to get back at a god who displaced them. But who needs to rule existence anyway? The upkeep and insurance are outrageous, and don't even get me started on the utilities. As I shoulder all of that burden, does existence raise even a finger to help me? I think we both know the answer. All existence does is take perfectly good matter and turn it into energy, leaving me to spend half the morning turning it back into matter. And existence still doesn't even have the decency to come by once a week or so and watch an episode with me for the day book. Well, existence, you'll get yours. You gotta sleep sometime, and when you do, bang! Kobayashi Maru! That's my friend, Mr. Best. You know, your other binary half. Did I say half? I meant more than half. Death is the transition between being and nothingness, and he is the lord of nothingness. Have you ever tried to take nothing away from him? Nothing. Not just the absence of something. Nope. Nothing. Nothing in a form we can't even conceive, because to do so would be to dignify it with a name, and once you describe it, it stops being nothing and becomes a thing. There you go, Mr. Best. Ruler of everything, as it goes on to become something indescribable. So, what does he do? Well, he's the ruler of death, not time. He's not psychic. Now that matter exists, he might as well do a tad of wagering. On what? Amanda Harris. She wants to off it by jumping from a bridge. Well, Tay created her, so who knows if she'll die. But, wait. By creating matter from only imagination, and from bending both matter and energy through paintings that transmute or bestow the effects of both matter and energy... Oh, man. 
Mr. Best isn't the most powerful being in the DSU anymore. I actually think it's Charles Delaware Tate. And he still lost a babe to Quentin. Why? Because, as this episode demonstrates, Quentin can punch a werewolf right on the jaw. That's the important part. He lands the ladies because he knows all the werewolfian weaknesses. We can pontificate all we want, but we tuned in for a man punching a werewolf. A man punching a werewolf we received. And that's how you get Capone. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to that. Please. Yeah. Please let me know when uh, when that uh, becomes available. So this is the the original day book that is being the audio version that they're, they're, she's doing the audio reading for, which I have here. She already finished it. Oh, she now finished she's it. doing the next book. She's doing Whoa. day book unbound. Yeah. Oh, mackerel. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's good. That's going to be quite the undertaking because uh, I was fortunate enough, thanks to Patrick, to get a preview, uh, an advanced copy of the uh, of the Kindle edition of the book, and oh my goodness, four hundred and thirty pages! Wow, that is truly epic. Uh, it really is, and it's magnificent. Um, I've been just kind of pouring over it and checking out some of the different entries. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful forward by Mark B. Perry, uh, which I really enjoyed, uh, and I. I'm thoroughly enjoying your witty and very insightful uh, entries. And for those who haven't read the Dark Shadows, the original Dark Shadows Day book, definitely get on that and check out the new one because Patrick really, um, he gets to the heart of Dark Shadows in a really in a meaningful way, but with the, also uh, a sense of fun. There's there's both heart and humor uh, in in your uh, analyses of the different episodes and storylines and beautiful tributes to some of the actors, um, th those who've passed away, like Mitchell Ryan and uh, Robert Rodin, and uh, you know, saying things like fans owe, uh, should have have more gratitude kind of for Robert Rodin or owe a debt of thanks, something, I, I'm not quoting it directly, but uh, how, uh, what a difficult position he was put in to, to play that character and how he really he's got to play this thing yeah yeah oh. and actually i even pulled a quote from from that adam uh it's a strange mix of both representing these literary inspirations and moving beyond them with regard to dark shadows few of the show's riffs though come as close to the source material as did adam so it's safe to take a moment of uh license and admit that no other actor was ever given the chance to explore the world of frankenstein's creation as robert rodin which is a great observation absolutely absolutely accurate too yeah yeah i mean as, as much as we want to say wonderful things and can say wonderful things about boris Karloff, uh and I mean, what an actor oh my god I, but his movies are like an hour long mm -hmm. you know he doesn't really have a chance to do a lot he does a lot with the time that he has but you know a fair test of rodin really is to imagine what Karloff would have done if he had been given the role of adam and had that much time but he didn't However, Rodin did, and what a man, I mean, you watch that performance, and he does everything. He gets to play every note, I think, on the on the on the keyboard of uh, of of the emotional range in that. And uh, it was one of those there are dark shadows deaths. I mean, I dread them all, but there are some I dread more than others. And uh, coming back to Rodin again and again, uh, as I, you know, cycle through the day book every year, 
Um, I, I am increasingly moved by his work and by what he's allowed to do. And, and I think, you know, people get annoyed because he, uh, he kidnaps Carolyn. He doesn't do a lot. And he kind of grunts and, and waves his arms a, a lot. But that's just part of it. And he has to do it. In the words of James Whale, it's part of the ritual. Um, however, everything else that he does, even his, his infant stuff, is just marvelously sensitive and surprising. It reminds me a lot of Sid Haig in uh, Spider Baby. Oh, right. Oh, sure, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Rodan, Rodan did a, a terrific job, and I'm, I'm really sorry that they couldn't find parts for him in the ensemble as the series went on. Yeah, yeah. Um, they brought him back for those uh, big Finnish audios uh, as a different character, but uh, as a like a revenant, uh, Oswald Gravener, I remember. And the, I, it would have been cool if they had brought him back as Adam, too, as, as Adam now uh, to see what, what Adam's up to these days. Because I always see Adam as becoming, I know people want, like in the Sam Hall article, that you had the scars removed and all this, but I, I see Adam going in the same traje trajectory as the Frankenstein monster did, becoming even more intelligent, but also becoming more embittered by what he encounters in the world and how he's, he's treated in the world. Um, and uh, I, I'd like, that's unfortunate, but that, that's just one of the quotes I pulled, but you, there are all kinds of really beautiful, just like in the first day book, really beautiful observations uh, about the show. And um, I guess a lot of people have a tendency to we were talking a little bit before the show started, you know, you kind of go to these conventions sometimes and you meet people who are claimed to be you know, really big horror fans, et cetera. But you mentioned Dark Shadows and some of them kind of look down their nose at it. And you illustrate very clearly why Dark Shadows is so important and and just a beautiful work of art you know and and how it's yeah there are problems with technical problems and stuff like that but i, I to me that's just part of it you know it's just the, the the creation of the show that's part of what went into the creation of the show did, did you see uh the movie mighty wind oh uh with the uh, uh, what is uh, christopher Hot guest christopher and, guest and, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's this scene in that where Bob Balaban, who's a very fussy guy who's putting this whole folk show together, is talking to the stage manager of the theater. And he's he's really freaking out because some of the some of the scenery's 3D, some of the scenery is just painted 2D. And uh, and and then he starts worrying about, you know, the microphones and everything else. And finally, uh the the stage manager's with says, Yeah, 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 that's fine. And that's a light. And that's a microphone, and we got to get started. And yeah. just slaps him in the back of the <laughs> yeah. head. And that's sort of how I feel. Um, it's like, yeah, there, there's a boom mic. Now you can choose to keep looking at that boom mic shadow, or you can choose to look at the brilliant actors who are under it. But they only had certain circumstances to do this. You know, you do this show in in something the size of a bowling alley, and see how you do. Yeah. Um, I I was very lucky because when I was first introduced to Dark Shadows, I was surrounded by an incredibly hip group of slightly older people. You know, I was in my teens, they were in their 20s. And they were like the the sort of the, the brainy underachievers in Breaking Away, if you remember that movie. Just really bright guys. One of them runs Wonderfest now. Oh. And it is no longer an underachiever in any sense. Dave Conover? And Dave Conover. Yeah, Dave Conover, sure. Yeah. Crazy. I know Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave, Dave was, was one of my great, great influences growing oh, up. Oh, awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like his 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 Bucky. Oh. So, except I didn't spy on him changing, which is how Bucky learned this. <laughs> yeah. What was going on? Anyway, so uh, they loved Dark Shadows and they had a wonderful sense of humor about it. And as far as I was concerned, Dark Shadows was the hippest thing in the room. It was weird and retro, but it was hip. And then I moved away. And I was surrounded by other fans, especially as, as Mr. Whedon's work became the uh, yes. piece of the narrative. And I suddenly went through a desert, especially when I moved to Knoxville, of years of almost being afraid to mention Dark Shadows. Wow. Because you would get, oh my God, you would get attacked. Uh, you would be made fun of. You, it was really uh. rough. And so I... Uh, I am I am continually finishing that argument with, <laughs> with the day book. You know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, a lot of a lot of art and a lot of stuff comes from a place of pain. And it's okay to admit that. Uh, and yeah, the day book, if you start to look at it, deals a lot with solitude. It deals a lot with maybe things not being understood or maybe being read too much on the surface. Um and and that's a way of processing a lot of that stuff. Um, speaking of, of processing a lot of that stuff, when you watched every episode of Dark Shadows in such a short, compressed span of time, I mean, that's amazing. But what did you come away with in terms of like looking at the overall themes of the show um, versus somebody who would watch it like piecemeal uh, here and there or I would say I got a an emotional sense mm -hmm. of things that I've been struggling to articulate ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, I the two 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 major takeaways. One, uh, to uh, to to out pretentious myself, which I may pull a muscle. Uh, <laughs> there is a really Jungian quality to these characters that are that are played by a single actor multiple characters played by a single actor and i really feel like you know it's it's kind of the 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 thousand faces of the cosmic gilligan you know there are there it is just all of the nancy barrett characters ultimately i mean we read it's nancy barrett uh, yeah. <laughs> or it's thing we consider to be the nancy barrett the john carlin the joan bennett and these parts are just different masks that they wear here and there. And so what you get to do is you start to look at, don't ask me what they are, but you start to look at the commonalities of, of these different parts that take on different masks in different eras. And so with uh, with with John Carlin and with, uh, with Nancy Barrett, you see this great class disparity. Um, and you see two young people uh, full of full of impulsiveness and desire. And if you if you ignore the fact that their characters have different names and you simply watch their trajectory over the series, you're able to see the you know the Loomis and the Carolyn unite. Yeah, yeah. And and be the couple maybe they're supposed to be. And and that that Willie evolves. He he actually becomes this intellectual hero. If you kind of think of it in a very broad way. If you look through your bad eye and go like this and just think of it as the same character, that's really something. So that was that was one thing, mm -hmm. the idea of the Frid or the Parker or whatever. Interesting, yeah. It's a powerful tool. The second thing is just 
this this dead horse that I will beat until it's six feet under, uh, which is the idea that this is one big story. And you get that when you watch the show in such a concentrated manner, because as in that terrible movie, Superman Returns, uh, there is that that moment where he's hovering above the earth and his cape is flapping in the space breeze. Uh, and <laughs> he's looking down and he can see the whole thing at once. And it's that thing that astronauts talk about seeing uh, when they're on the moon and they see the whole thing at once. And when you do it in that short a period of time, the beginning of the series is still very fresh in your mind when you see the end of the series. Right. And of course the middle is in there also. And you just, you just see it all at once and you have this beautiful sense of emotional clarity about, about this as a, as a living organic story. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Um, that said, um, do you, I know in the, in the day book, the new day book Unbound, um, you do uh, a write-up uh, on the first episode of the series, the, the arrival yeah. of Victoria Winters, but then you also refer to that as the first episode of Shadows on the Wall, uh, and, yeah, which is interesting. Shadows. Yeah, can you elaborate? Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, t just today I was watching um, uh, an episode. I think it was. Uh, it was like uh, six seventy three or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's where uh, 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 oh uh, David is ordered to kill Chris Chris Jennings by Quentin, and he runs out. Of, he doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And and I'm looking at that episode. That episode begins with Barnabas locking Chris up in the mausoleum, and Chris saying, "Why are you treating me like this? Why are you trying to help me?" And Barnabas just ah, oh, you know, just just a thing I do. And um, and then it goes to Amy and David creeping out Mrs. Johnson. Yeah. Who's wondering, she's got she's got a great drunk's paranoia uh, about him. I love it. She's so smart. <laughs> and um, and then they go up. They they you know decide they're going to root around in Quentin's sock drawer. And Quentin's <laughs> there and says, "Hey, here's some strychnine." And Amy goes running out, and mm -hmm. and so does David. And it's such an evocative episode. And the, the music seems so sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember seeing it when I was a, a young man, when I was about 16, and just how I felt like I was the mist on an iceberg of mystery that I would never really understand, but it was, it was all real. And just how spooky and atmospheric and mysterious and paranoid and human and loving this entire episode is. Okay, that's Dark Shadows. Yeah. That star, and they had to discover what Dark Shadows was. And if you look at what was created, you know, where's Vicky? Where's Where's Vicky in that? She's, she's not there. Um, and if you look at that early stuff, this is this is not a pilot for that show. Mm -hmm. In any sense, is it a pilot for that show? It's a pilot for a kind of you know mystery pen thing. You know, I, I just uh. A, a kind of pot boiler time spinning uh, thing about an angry businessman who spent some time in jail. But is it part of the overall story that you just, that world, that yeah. whole looking at the, that world from that perspective, is that part of it's it? Not, no, it's not even no. good world building. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, is it bad TV? No, it's good TV. It's great TV. I'm happy to watch the show that that first episode introduces. Okay. However, I can also concede that it has very little to do with Dark Shadows. And, and to prove my point is the fact that for, what, 30 years after the show went off the air, you had 30 years worth of new Dark Shadows fans who never yeah, it's true. Saw it. Yeah. So it, it clearly didn't hurt them. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying I, I dislike Vicky Winters or any of that. It just ain't the same show. Okay. What about 1841 Parallel Time? Is that... Uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful counterpoint to that. <laughs> um, it, it, it is more of Dark Shadows than that early part is. Okay. In fact, I would say it's a good course. And because at that point, they had permission to be Dark Shadows. They yeah. knew what Dark Shadows was. They had permission to really go there with the supernatural and the menace. And, and they, they knew where the bread and butter was. So I would say, even though people didn't see that either for about 30 years, it's much closer to being Dark Shadows right. because it does the things we think of Dark Shadows. The whole vibe. Uh, would, you, would you say that Dark Shadows became Dark Shadows with Barnabas? Uh, the introduction of Barnabas or with the Laura, the Phoenix storyline? Well, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, uh, Dark Shadows was a success in syndication, right? Yeah. And it was a success on VHS yeah. and on DVD before the beginning came out and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't get around any of that early stuff, including Laura, the Phoenix, and it okay. still did okay. So I would argue that that that's that, that yes, of course, it begins with Barnabas as we really think of it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. however, can it begin magnificently with Laura the Phoenix now that we have access to it? You bet. Mm -hmm. You bet. Mm -hmm. But it's it's still thematically, you know, Barnabas is your main character. If you look at the most right. important decision made on the series, sure, yeah, made by Angelique, yeah, at the, at the end of the show. And so to reverse engineer it. Everything goes back to that. Yeah. And you had an excellent theory about Angelique, uh, which um, I pulled that too. I'm just going to read this if you if you don't mind. Oh, please. Uh, this is uh, eight, the end of 1840, as you pointed out. In, uh, let me see here. In addition to writing lyrics for Joanna's theme, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm not going to spoil that. So people are going to have to wait for the Daybook Unbound to read Patrick's uh, ly brilliant lyrics for Joanna's theme, which I loved. Um there's um there's a great theory you have on Angelique. Uh, so it says, uh, so in terms of her grand transformation, what if Angelique is making it all up or some of it up? After all, she's always been perfectly happy to use her powers to influence Barnabas's decisions. How he came about loving her was always less relevant than the fact that he simply did. No love spells on him. She simply mastered the fine art of influence. Faking her own death is the longest but strongest game possible. Had the 1971 primary time storyline happened, it might very well have seen Barnabas exploring the timeline in pursuit of Angelique. At last, she would be desired and sought on a level to rival Josette. At last, he would have her right where she wants him. <laughs> it's just an interpretation, just a what if, true believers. Yes, a bleakly cynical one of multi-level manipulation, but 
you have met Angelique, right? <laughs> or maybe it's just preferable to the idea that she's gone, which I love that. That's a great way to end that. Um, really cool theory, um, you know, that Angelique faked the whole thing uh, as a just another. And if the show had continued, I mean, guaranteed, we would have seen Angelique. She died in 1840. Yeah, right. How many times has Angelique died, right? You know, um, so I, I think... Yeah, you might be onto something there. We that that's a very interesting theory. We have no idea what happens right mm -hmm. after this back in 1971. She might be there with Alan Funt, you know, waiting to <laughs> waiting to hey Bernard, guess what? Guess right, it. Just kidding. Julian's <laughs> on it and so Stokes. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing. Here's Jerry Lacey. He's actually trashed the whole time. He's just an act. <laughs> very funny writer in the future. Um <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, that was a last minute theory I had. That's one of the more recent pieces. And that's the, that's the thing about this book is that it's much more, for the most part, it's, it's more recent stuff mm -hmm. that I was doing while the first day book was locked down. And, you know, every time something good happens, then I feel like I have to earn it. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of start working harder and harder and harder. Um, and so after Wallace said, hey, let's do the day book, then I feel like my pieces got much better, but I couldn't put them in. And mm -hmm. that was one of them. I had written very sentimental stuff, very emotional stuff. I had a very emotional uh, situation when I did the watch through with 1198, but always about 1198. And by the way, yesterday was the 52nd anniversary of 1198 being filmed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Evangelist's death. Yeah. But I, I had written uh, very sentimentally again and again and again. And, you know, you sentiment is exhausting. <laughs> and you and and after a while of being forced to mourn these characters, a conspiracy theorist begins to to emerge in, <laughs> in one's mind. And I, I felt kind of bad because I wanted to write something really sort of gut punchy emotional and no this sort of cynical thing came out but it's it's cynicism that also has a strange optimism to it because it's it's a way for me to kind of come up with a way that she might not be dead yeah. and i like that yeah uh, and yeah and and it's funny because that last line that you quoted um is not in the day book as it appeared online oh really uh, no i put that in uh, very, very, very recently. Oh, In fact, okay. maybe, maybe just a week or two ago. Oh, no kidding. Wow. I, the, the, the ending of this book is probably earlier than you want to talk about it, so I won't say that much, but creating some sort of emotional catharsis was very important to me, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a rotten line, then, yeah, I've met Angelique, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> that's fine for a column, but for a book where that's ending the the main examination of the of the series... Uh, I thought, no, I, I just can't do that to myself. I don't want to read that. Yeah. Um, and I and I, I want to give readers something something more. I think you also get to the heart of something else that when I had Laura Parker on the show, you know, she talked about how um, there's a sort of a deep. I mean, you look at Dark Shadows and say, well, there's no real moral sense because the the heroes of the show are murdering people and and all of this, but there is this desire for <laughs> for them to strive to be better uh all of them and she pointed that out too that you know, all the villains in the show it's true the monsters of the show the villains of the show that start out that you think like barnabas and Ange even angelique ultimately and uh, quentin too um 
you see them do these pretty horrible things, but they ultimately re strive for, to be better. Um, is I don't know. I and I see that you point that out quite a few that type of thing out in your write ups as well. It's the same thing with Jeb. Yeah, Jeb same too. Yeah, Paul. correct. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. it's that love love will come in and mess you up and make you a good person no matter what. And the thing that's really impressive is not only the 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 redemptive power of love, but when you talk about Angelique and Barnabas and the morality surrounding them, that's something I've contended with for a long time. And ultimately, it's sort of a frighteningly fascistic line of, of argument that you have to make because, you know, they are not as others. Mm -hmm. Their lifespans are on a much longer continuum. And in fact, I think there's something in the in the New Day book about this. I finally was able to put it in very few words, which I'll fail at today. But um, uh, the idea is that if they are atoning for the really rotten things that they did, especially early on, Sarah, Naomi, all of that stuff, um, who's left to forgive them after a while? Mm -hmm. They're all dead. You know, forgiveness and atonement and so on and so forth really is only salient when directly injured parties are are there to 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 be uh, to to receive reparations, mm -hmm. and uh, or or the or the the descendants who have been directly affected, yeah. you know, atone to them. However, those people are gone. And so the only people that you can really atone to are each other. Mm -hmm. And and you're cursed to live. You're a godlike being. So really mortal standards of, you know, mortals, they have an easy time of it. They don't have the responsibility of saving this or that. They're short timers. They're out of here. And that's kind of nice. You know, they don't deal with the existential dread of being trapped in a coffin for 173 years. Um, and the, the less glamorous aspects of this life. And so um, and so your, your standards of morality change uh, a bit. However, what do we as humans take away from that? Well, what we as humans take away from that is that um, atonement is salient under certain circumstances. But but after a while, just be a better person. The period of time in which Dark Shadows became popular it was a time of two things. You know, we had this uh, youth counterculture going on, and we also had uh, monster kid craze. The monster craze was happening. Kids, you know, they were obsessed with monsters, and you had this whole counterculture going on. And Dark Shadows, I think, as far as pop culture and, and genre, television, and just in general, in terms of sort of the gothic genre, um, the supernatural characters, the characters that were traditionally the ones who are uh, the ones that must be destroyed sort of thing and, and threatening the living, they become the uh, protagonists of the show. Um, and I have to wonder if that was because of the culture at the time. I assume that that's because we never, we, I don't think we 
ever saw anything like that before. And I, and we see it all the time now. It's just taken for granted when you see these TV shows, like you mentioned Buffy, like that, like Angel, you know, something like that, uh, or True Blood or, or uh, Sabrina or things like the Sabrina, the chilling adventures of Sabrina, all of this kind of stuff where these supernatural characters are the heroes of the show. Dark Shadows did it first, uh, as far as I'm aware. Uh, well, they did. I would. I hate to say, it, Monsters and Adams. Family oh, sure, yeah. Did. In terms of comedy, but, in terms of com- yeah, in yeah. terms of comedy. But yeah. that narrative had been had been created a little bit, but it wasn't terribly political. Mm-hmm. Not to the extent that Dark Shadows was political. And yeah, you have an era of rebels. And who are the greatest rebels of all? Misunderstood monsters. And really, with the exception of Dracula, and Dan Curtis fixed that, with the exception of Dracula, all of those universal monsters are k- kind of misunderstood. Sure. You know, even the mummy yeah. got a raw deal in his in his love life. The creature in the Black Lagoon, of course, very misunderstood. Uh, the Wolfman, completely misunderstood or understood, but it's just sad for Larry Talbot. Yeah. Uh, and and so if you if you round that out with Dracula. And if you suddenly invent a reason why Dracula is Dracula and that it's full of remorse and it was for love and so on and so forth, suddenly you have the the greatest rebels of the 20th century mm-hmm. all assembled. You know, mm-hmm. it's House of Curtis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. House of Curtis. That should be the title of, of your next book, House of Curtis. I'd be happy to. It sounds good to me. <laughs> What, so for the day book, the new day book, can you tell us um, a little bit of what we can expect uh, in terms of where, what were the challenges in terms of doing the second book versus the first one? Uh, one of the challenges was the fact that I covered a lot of the real fun stuff in the first book. Uh-huh. And so those some of those highlights, just you got to read the first book. However, this um, this takes everything else and it looks at it in a greater depth i think that the pieces are better on one hand uh they're a little deeper mm-hmm. on the other hand they're also a little looser I, I i had developed a lot more confidence as a writer and so they're they're more playful in places they're more improvisational in places i'm not exhausting myself as much to to sound profound um uh, as I as I did in the pieces in the first book, they're they're more mature. That's really abstract, but I think you get that in in the reading though. I, I'm very proud of this one. I don't I don't get proud of my own stuff very often. So that's number one. Number two, a great introduction by Mark Perry. Number three, as I had finished the book and was just kind of you know polishing it and and putting in a few more typos, I watched episode three sixty four. And it's the one where Sarah finally appears to Barnabas. I could write a book about that one episode. And in fact, I think I got two essays out of it. One at the beginning, which I call a forward conclusion. Yeah. And then I think one towards the end mm-hmm. or maybe in the middle or something. I don't know. It's all a I did read the forward conclusion. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's a Rosetta Stone for a lot of the show. And so that was really exciting that, I mean, Mark Perry and I were talking about what his introduction was going to be. And I was at a Christmas party 
that I was trying to avoid. And suddenly I was thinking about 364, which I'd seen that morning and it, it struck me. And so I just, I just went over into a, a corner and wrote it. Uh, and, um, and so we have that, which for me is kind of, at least right now, a, a Rosetta Stone for the show. You have a lot more, uh, I don't call them obituaries, but memorials for actors, which I, which I really enjoy writing. Um, I think they, 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 what I try to do, I don't know if I'm successful, what I try to do is articulate why these people probably matter to, I mean, they do matter to fans, but, but why I suspect they matter to fans. And there was one naughty thing I did, and I really tried to do penance in this. And that was, I, I said long ago on a podcast, I said a rotten thing about Jeffrey Scott. And I have felt awful about that ever since. And so I really, really, really am happy that his, his memorial is in there because he himself admitted what his shortcomings were on the show. And, um, and I wanted to do him justice. Uh, you know, not, not a lot of these, these, these guys, although they deserve it, get qualitative memorials after they pass away. They get something in variety that's, you know, like a couple of paragraphs about what they did. And then that's it. Nobody talks about their impact the way that they should. And so, uh, you know, maybe maybe somebody will read this and, and that will matter to them. Uh, and I and I'm, I love that uh, when I wrote the Ben Cross obituary, which is in there. Yeah, uh, I got I got a, a letter from Ben Cross's daughter. Oh, that's wonderful. Because it and, was po it was posted on the uh, Collinsport Historical Society website as well, because yeah. some of these a lot of these entries originated at the Collinsport Historical Society and then you re redid them for the for the book. Yeah. Yeah. Just to and, clarify and she, she, for people. She was she was very complimentary. Yeah. And that made me realize, oh, these people have kids and they might be reading these things. And as someone who has a lot of bereavement issues, I've been to a lot more funerals than I have weddings. Um, I know the value of something like that. And so I'm not I'm not gonna say I do a good job at it, but at least I'm out there doing something. And oh, it's fantastic, like, beautiful. And, yeah. And feel good. So yeah. so there's that. Uh there are extra essays. Some of them just about the essays, but then there are a few others where I'm able to do, you know, a few, few tributes here and there. I wrote about an experience I had with, with Roger Davis at the 50th anniversary convention, mm -hmm. um, who's a very controversial figure. Uh, my experience with him has been very positive. Um, and and so there's, there's, there's a lot of extra stuff. Uh, and the part that really mattered to me was, was the end, because I feel like I, I, I did okay with the end of the first day book, but I don't assume, I, you know, talk about bereavement issues. I don't assume I'm going to be around, you know, tomorrow. I, I don't know. I, I have no, my mother died when she was 64 and 51. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I really, anytime I approach something like this, I approach it with the thought of, well, if I have a heart attack, you know, on my way to the refrigerator and this is it, is it going to be valuable to people? And so I, I wasn't really thrilled with the ending in the first day book. And in this case, I had a bunch of disparate stuff. Gordon Dymowski was very helpful in helping me structure it. And um, and I feel like I, I might have arrived at something that, that will be cathartic for fans. And yeah. that would make me really happy. This could just be a book of essays, you know, there's mm -hmm. catty stuff some guy said about a show. And certainly it's that. I don't want to disappoint. But... <laughs> Uh, but but I remember as I as I added that last part that afterward, and I put the memorials 
before the other essays, the Christmas Carol and then the 1991 Dark Shadows, I, I really felt something emotional, which I never had before with with uh, with my writing. And I felt good enough to put the words the end. Yeah. Which doesn't mean I'm not going to write any more day books. No. I don't know. But I, I felt like it was it was it was uh, cosmically appropriate. Yeah. Now, are you talking about the afterward? The afterward? Yeah. 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 That was a really cool idea. Uh, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on it or wait till people get the book so that you they can see what you're talking about. But it was a really, uh, a really fascinating and uh, and really, I thought it was a great way to end the book uh, because, yeah. Oh, do you want to elaborate on what, what you did I'd, there? I'd be happy to. It was completely <laughs> accidental. And mm. that was last minute. That was late December. And uh, uh, I was in a conversation uh, with Mark Perry about the the how dramatic the making of the show was. And like Lucy attempting to always get into Ricky's yep. show, I'm always trying wacky stunts to get people's attention. So, you know, I can do, do something more. And um, and so we were we were talking and I uh, and, and he said, you know, gosh, the, the that show the making of it would be really interesting. He started talking about the show, The Offer, about the making of The Godfather. And suddenly I had this vision and it was this Paul Thomas Anderson style montage at the end of, uh, like at like the end of Magnolia or something that would show if we did an eight episode mini series about the making of Dark Shadows, that would show where everyone went. And I had tremendous emotional clarity about how I felt about some of these people that I had never thought about before. But when I put them in an artistic kind of bent and I thought of them as, as characters as well, suddenly a, a very clear narrative popped into my mind. And so I wrote this writing sample. I wrote this, this dramatic writing sample, this spec, spec script of just describing what that montage that would end the show would be. And, uh, and it was terrific. I sent it to him and he liked it. And then I thought, gosh, what if I put that at the end? Yeah. And it just really felt nice. Yeah. It, really it worked. worked. It worked. It was a great capper for the book because it, I think fans of Dark Shadows tend to be just as fascinated with how the show was made uh, as they are with the show itself, with the content itself, because it is a fascinating story. And it's incredible that it actually exists, that they were able to actually do what they did uh, under the constraints that they were dealing with. I mean, it's just absolutely remarkable that they pulled that off and just the creativity and what went into it and uh, just the frenetic pace with which it was created. The, the Lucy, I love Lucy conveyor belts with the chocolates with Lucy, not perfect, perfect uh, analogy there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And you mentioned that you, you know, you talk about things in this book um like the 91 series you're going into the 91 series which is was really interesting to read about as well i love your i pulled another quote here to touch on the 91 show your summation of the 91 revival show which i have to rewatch. i haven't watched it since the night i watched it when it was when it aired and then i watched i got the mpi tapes mpi released the series on vhs as well at that time and i have the the dvds but i got I, some one day i need to sit down and, and re-watch that but i love how you uh end this you say if dark shadows 1991 failed to be a show uh, with numbers demanding a second season, and if it falls short of being the late '80s music video nightmare that might we might have gotten 
that more so that might have gotten all the gang talking at the sock hop. It doesn't matter. It's the Sains. It's half season with a unique, compelling, and headstrong voice that doesn't need to ask for anyone's approval. Dan Curtis's braggadocio may have created a strangely anachronistic show, but given the nature of its lead character, that may have been the most loyal choice possible. That's a really, a really great observation. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think you nailed it there. That's for sure. Uh, absolutely. I don't. I remember enjoying the '91 series when I watched it. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't rewatched it since then, but. I love my heart belongs to the original series, but I also definitely give a nod to to the ninety one show too. Yeah, I think it's possible to watch them with no conflict, especially mm-hmm. because the ninety one series was a flop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, thirteen hours is sort of an indulgence, and you kind of rub its head and say, "Oh, look at you! Aren't you cute in your turtleneck?" And uh, and and it does some really cool stuff. Uh, so it's, it is for the series, what it is in the book, just this kind of wacky epilogue mm-hmm. sort of, uh, episode. Of what if it's just another parallel, it's like the movies, it's another parallel time. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's how that's I how see I it too. It. Yeah. That's how I see it too. Um, I, I'll, I'll have to revisit it. Um, I had, I remember having some issues with it, but there were, there were things I liked. I liked that he, that Dan Curtis did a Gothic tale instead of like you described 80s nightmare music video um you know and trying to get with the times and make it i mean and they still they did do Deeper some of that hairdo. yeah they they did a little bit of that i mean they i think a little ben, bit i think ben, not as mm-hmm. not as much as you might think right yeah yeah exactly they they, they, they really uh they should have kept barnabas in a suit Too i agree totally 100 percent agree turtlenecks yep I, I'll, I'll, I'm all in. I didn't like that. Yeah, I was like, Barnabas doesn't belong in a turtleneck. He needs to be in the suit. You got to keep him in the suit. He, he, he would feel like a convict. Yeah. He would say, <laughs> Willie, why are you dressing me like a convict? What yeah. did I do to you that you should dress me in this kid? I'm, I'm in a sock. I'm yeah. in a giant sock. Boy, <laughs> thank you. And it stinks of Paco Rabanne. Where did yeah. you get this? Did yes, you yes. Agree. That's why... Um, I love Alec Newman as an actor, but that 2004 pilot, I'm like, what? What? Why is he wearing that? <laughs> he just the, the essence of Barnabas, the thing that's so magnificent about Barnabas, is his fish out of waterdom. Yep. But not the way Johnny did it. It's not Austin or because the beauty is is that he just, with Willie's help, he just kind of fits in enough. Mm-hmm. But he's like a nerdy Benny Hill character who <laughs> buys a swingers outfit and shows up at a party and tries to look like he's really with it. Right. And he's he's just kind of a little off. Yeah, yeah. And that's the that's the hilarious when I say Dark Shadows is a comedy, I got into some argument with somebody online about this the other day. Uh uh when I say Dark Shadows is a comedy, it's for those reasons. I I mean I don't i see there are a lot of humorous things in dark shadows like anything louis Edmonds says immediately elicits a smile uh from me or a laugh uh or count potofi uh you know one of my favorite scenes in 1897 you know count potofi walks in and quentin 
confronts him and says something to the effect of my nephew's dying my my brother's in, in, a madman my uh so-and-so's possessed and just listing off all these horrendous things that Count Potofi has done and Potofi casually says oh stop worrying about your family <laughs> Pansy Faye just Pansy and Carl I want a spin-off series for Pansy and Carl uh you know, just there are a lot of there is humor in Dark Shadows, but it's not done at the expense of the drama and the mystery and the and the suspense. It's part. Hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Hmm. You're absolutely right. It's uh, and, and you know, you got you got 450 hours. Mm -hmm. So you got plenty of time for it to be a comedy. You have plenty yeah. of time for it to be a drama to be horror to be romance to be to be everything it's like the bond movies people ask me who my favorite bond is and i say well it just depends on my mood you know it's dark shadows the same thing yeah 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 i, I want to ask you some like super geeky i mean i guess this whole conversation has been Please. geeky questions but i do want to get into that but before before we do that i want to just any clo closing thoughts on the day book itself, the day book unbound, where people can get it. Uh, and uh, while and your partner in crime, Wallace McBride, of course, was involved in this. And he very kindly uh, lets me post uh, the terror at Collinwood episodes over on the Collinsport Historical Society on Facebook. So I really appreciate that. But um, uh, any, you know, info that people this should know dumb. about. Yeah, yeah, uh, Wallace, the 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 Orson Welles to my frozen peas. Uh, <laughs> Wallace is currently putting the art in the book for print. Wallace is uh, is building that, and uh, you know this all the 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 early Kindle release has to do with this weird scheme I worked out to get a free PDF typeset copy from Amazon. Uh, <laughs> It all has to do with how you can build these things now within Amazon's own app, which is fantastic. And if you want to write a book, get this app, the Kindle Create app. It makes it very easy. Uh, so we had a date for the, you know, maybe the release. And, you know, life gets in the way. And so he's put he's putting extra fabulousness into it. Uh, <laughs> and that really doesn't work with Kindle because it constantly has to reformat itself. And I and see. His meticulous typesetting doesn't really matter. So it, it for a for a Kindle version. So the Kindle version, there's no reason why it couldn't come out. And uh it it had to at some point. And it sort of is a preview really for the print version. Yeah. Uh and uh and so that explains sort of the bifurcated release. Now I don't know quite when the art's gonna be in there. Uh I suspect I mean he's doing it right now. So I suspect we're going to see this out before Valpurgis knocked. Oh, you know, great. Around, Perfect. Around April 30th, <laughs> I'm imagining. Maybe Good before. timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he can, and, and, you know, we can definitely, you know, plug in a lot of the stuff into the old template. So, because we want it to have a, a visual consistency okay. with, with the first book. So, and, and right now you can get the Kindle version, uh, strangely enough on Amazon. Um, if you are a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, it's free. Just read, read all the way through because that's how I get paid. It's this <laughs> weird thing where you get paid based on how many pages people read. No kidding, really? It's it's a real wow. Yeah, it's because because they take all the money that Kindle Unlimited subscribers put in every month. Okay. They divide that amongst the authors. 
they divide it further by how many books were downloaded and then how many pages in those books got read. Okay. So, wow. Uh, however, there is a penny dreadful special for <laughs> at least, yes, that started now. And it runs until this podcast has been out for at least a day. It's the Penny Dreadful special. And for 99 Penny Dreadfuls, for 99 <laughs> cents from now, out of gratitude for the wonderful things that you do. Oh. And as a way for me with the Dark Shadows community to thank you for what you do. Um, your readers, meaning all Dark Shadows fans, can get the new day book, get the day book unbound for 99 cents. That and is awesome. They can get it now for 99 cents for at least a day after this is out. And you that's that's already begun. You heard it here. So as of when this episode is posted, 20 with 24 they hours, they can get it 99 cents, the penny dreadful special. I'm honored. Thank you for Absolutely. doing that. Thank, Thank you. you. And for for all of the things that you and Wallace have done uh for Dark Shadows and for the Dark Shadows community. I am extremely grateful because you guys, I mean, over the years have just been unbelievable. I mean, like I said, you're a machine. When I was texting with you, I said, you're a machine. I don't know how you do it, but uh, you and Wallace together, what a what a force of nature, like over the years, all the articles and really cool. You've helped. I think you said the first time you were on the podcast that you, part of doing this was to illustrate to people why dark shadows is cool uh not to make dark shadows look cool it already is cool you are you are demonstrating why dark shadows is cool and a lot of that through the website in the internet generation uh, because i'm i'm very grateful to the founders of the dark shadows fandom as well for the fanzines and all of the stuff the festivals all of that too but you guys in the in the sort of the internet age have uh, and of course Stuart manning too with the dark shadows news page but you guys with the uh, meme, like just the memes that Wallace would make that I would see flying all over social media and our great articles, write-ups, uh, interviews, all kinds of really cool things and presented in a visually compelling and fun way that was um, entertaining for people that are just scrolling through on their on their phones and stuff and uh, looking online. So uh, it's really uh, uh, an amazing thing that you guys have done. And you, you've been uh, uh, awarded with Rondo's, with Rondo Awards, which were well-deserved, the two of you guys. So thank you for everything you've done for the Dark Shadows fandom. It's, it's my pleasure. Um, so, we're, so we're wrapping this up, right? Pretty soon, pretty soon. I want to ask you a couple of geeky questions. Okay, so. good, good, good. And then I've got, and then I've got a treat. <laughs> okay, let's let's okay. go. What what, okay. what do we got? Okay, so okay, so I want to ask you some questions. One thing that came to mind when you were talking earlier. Okay, um, you're like uh, I I said I always say uh, Patrick McRae is like the Fonz of Dark Shadows podcast because he yeah. remember the Fonz would show up on Laverne and Shirley sometimes or on on Mark and Mindy or whatever Joni loves Chachi I think it was even on Sesame Street one time um but so Patrick you know I see Patrick on all these podcasts talking about you know plot stuff with regard to Dark Shadows and really cool theories that you come up with you I've seen a resident of Collinwood and uh the the between the shadows Jewel Jewel Karen Kristen I've seen you on deep the new there's a new one on Twitter deep shadows I was tagged in I was like hey Patrick's on this deep shadows on Twitter this is interesting I listened to it was really cool what was that? What? I was, there was a, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thrilled. Really? Well, I so, lots of memory. You were, yeah, it was, I, you were talking, they were talking about 
from a literary perspective like you're talking about books and and say how dan curtis was a fan of like uh oh yeah of new england oh, fishing uh like up. i was like bob hope filming really you just walked it you yeah. crashed the party <laughs> yeah they had this thing on twitter you know they had these listening parties on twitter or something i thought oh, hell i'll just oh there's a there's don's on that i'll i'll show up awesome so, yeah i just i just was killing time yeah yeah i was like i got tagged somebody tagged me and i was like oh this is cool and they have all these episodes i was like wait patrick's over here on this episode and of course you were in the collinsport historical society podcast so um i i want to ask you like okay so you brought up quentin poisoning chris jennings now i have some thoughts on this but why why do you think quentin wanted to poison chris jennings because he thought he'd think it was funny That um, is very much in line with Quentin Collins, so maybe, maybe so. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, well, okay, so a couple of things. One, we don't know that this is the ghost of Quentin. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it it could be it could be somebody else. You've you've put uh, that forward before, P- Potofi, right? Uh, no, I, th- I or think Judah, Judah Zachary. Judah Zachary, yeah, it's his first effort to kind of mess with the house mm-hmm. and to get people in a bad mood because he knows Quentin Collins is going to be showing up and. That's one of the few forces that could really give him a hard time. Mm-hmm. But, okay, let's say it is the ghost of Quentin. Um, uh, you know, because we're already in this whole thing about he loves Jameson, so he will kill his identical great-grandson. Grand, it's just <laughs> so weird. It's like Doc yeah. Savage having a twin cousin. <laughs> but but, uh, but my, my, my theory is that he feels sorry for Chris and oh. he wants to end the line. Mm-hmm. So before Chris can have a, a werewolf child uh, or whatever, he's trying to put Chris out of his misery. Yeah. Yeah. By, by messing with the mind of a young boy and turning a child into a murderer, <laughs> which is how these things are done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Quentin has so much power and yet, he wants to do this other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if it is the, the ghost of Quentin, that the ghost of Quentin is kind of insane. Mm-hmm. And that the ghost of Quentin, it's taking a lot of energy for him to influence David. And I think he's non compos mentis. I, th- I don't think he's all there because you think he died and he's had to let his energy build up more and more and more and more until he could finally spark the telephone and get David in there and have the right person at the right time. And he's still, you know, I don't think it's until he kicks everybody out of the house that he is really at his full power. And here he's gloating that he has them gone and that the house is his. Take that Judith. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, it, I I agree with you. I I think he was trying to end the line, but I think he inadvertently, my my feeling is because we see they never really explain when Barnabas uh, goes to let Chris out of the mausoleum, the secret room in the mausoleum in the morning. He's still a werewolf. He has not revered. And there was a line during the Leviathan storyline where Jeb uh, Bruno wanted to kill um, the werewolf while he was in human form. And Jeb Hawk said, no, if you if you kill him while he's in human form, that will turn him into the animal forever. Uh, and I wonder if. If Jeb is correct, maybe Quentin off camera succeeded in killing Chris, and that's what caused him to become a werewolf permanently and not 
transform back because they don't really explain why he's, you know, why he doesn't part of going back to 1897. He's trying to, Barnabas is trying to save David's life, but he also is trying to save Chris. Um, remember, Chris is trapped in the secret room of the mausoleum and he's a werewolf. He, he has not changed back. So I wonder if maybe Jeb was right and maybe Quentin did succeed in uh, killing Chris after all. I don't know. It could be, you know, I, I, but, but we're now positing that, that, that Jeb and Bruno Hess are the, are the Richard Attenborough of, uh, <laughs> of, of this kind of nature. And they're, they're not the first, you know, if Elliot Stokes says it, okay. If the hairdo twins say it. <laughs> well, say but the werewolf, the werewolves are the enemies of the Leviathans. So, although Jeb is not really up to speed on the book, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to care. Oh. How did that happen? Yes. How do you have a race of primordial snake gods that pre-exist time and the earth and everything else, but they got a problem with a guy who turns into a wolf uh, on someone? <laughs> I I listened to the episode I did. With, listen to the episode I did with Rick Lay and Stephen Mark okay. Rainey. Rick Lay pulls out the Robert E. Howard pulp info on that and actually okay. presents precedent some precedent for that uh <laughs> he does he totally does it's amazing it's the okay so the werewolf in uh, there there's this race of snake beings uh and their enemies are these wolf spirits they're not they have no form they're they're spirits the wolf spirits they're enemies and then it can inhabit a person and that turns them into a werewolf listen listen to that i rick explained it much better than than i can but listen to that start, episode no when you start taking the medication you've got to take all of it <laughs> like, otherwise you know it's those really big pills that you gotta see all the way through or else, you know, sure, wolf spirits. Why not? I'm telling. But, I'm uh, going to send you the link. I'm telling you, you got to listen to. It's compelling, Rick. Rick, I believe oh, you, Rick. It's a. It's the Leviathan's episode. Rick brings his A game. I'm telling you, you got to listen to it. <laughs> I I would love to hear it because there's a you know there's all that Lovecraftian stuff and Howard's tied in with that in the Leviathans. Of course, I got my own Leviathan theories. Oh, what is it? What I, is... I, well, that that the. Collinwood was built to be a command station for the Leviathans and that oh. Joshua was being duped by them or was one of them. Oh, wow. And, and that, that it was the, the whole parallel time. It was built around that. It was built to be near the altar. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was built for all of that. And that, that we've just been awaiting this. Mm-hmm. And that's why they chose Barnabas, because he's the son of Joshua. And it's just one of those things Joshua never got around to telling him because things kind of went in this direction instead. Uh, but yeah, that's my, that's my, that's my, because why would Joshua build a big mansion when he has no family and he already has a big mansion? Yeah, yeah. So, you, make any so you think Joshua was, was tied into all of this or at least was, had some awareness of? Or, or was being paid or was just uh -huh. duped something there's some something weird uh -huh. going on there and it all centers on the parallel time room and then you know the time staircase yeah these are all tools of the leviathans to command a multi-dimensional invasion 
interest do you think the leviathans became aware of things like the time staircase or do you think they orchestrated that do you think they manipulated i think they helped orchestrate they helped they they influenced quentin the first and in his yeah sure yeah yeah why not and that's just science yeah (laughs) child knows now do you think the the parallel time room is is an independent my theory has always been that, that 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 time staircase and all of the time travel tore open and uh, uh some gateway into par- into a par- into parallel universes or was the parallel time vortex always there to, from the beginning of of time i guess i i used to see it as a pressure valve mm-hmm. that it it was this thing that naturally occurred now the way i see it is that it it was a thing it was like the center of ley lines that was yeah. just this swirling mass of weirdness and they built the house around it uh because it also has powers of time travel and so on and so forth i think probably quentin the first was a little aware of something over there yeah. and so was trying to build a mechanical version to command it and influence it yeah. but i i definitely think that it's it's a portal to all sorts of stuff and my other theory is, is that every time I think there's more than one parallel time room in the house. And if you look at all of the inconsistencies, which this is right up there with the original Planet of the Apes series for for that. If you look at all the inconsistencies, I think at any point, you know, Liz goes into her bedroom. She comes out into a parallel universe where suddenly everybody's talking about a pen or there Mm -hmm. are three widows who are really important. And then she goes to bed and she gets up and nobody mentions them again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Why? Because it's a, it's like the, it's like the movie. What was it? Uh, started with a C. It's uh, coherence. Okay. Where they keep, where they keep going out of the house after this comet passes by, and they wind up in other parallel houses for themselves. Oh, wow, interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's what's going on. Interesting. You, you could argue that every episode of Dark Shadows is set in a, <laughs> in a parallel version of absolutely you should certainly make that argument um i like that you brought up ley lines too because i i agree my, my friend eric a while back put forward the the theory that the the very ground upon which collinwood is built is is enchanted or or cursed or so the ley lines thing fit, fits right in with that i mean i think there's something about that area that is uh isn't natural or it or attracts supernatural things uh to it what about okay so one other thing um speaking of uh, of all this time travel and everything and i asked this question in the first episode of the podcast i ever did and nobody ever ever sent in a theory so i'm curious to hear your theory about this uh because this one's always been a head scratcher in 1840 uh, where was the family secret, which was Barnabas? Uh, Daniel Collins was supposed to have passed it down, and ultimately Edith knows the secret in 1897 when she sees Barnabas. Do you write? Do you do you explain it via parallel time? Like this is a different, slightly different time band where the secret wasn't around, or was it because Daniel because was kind of out of it? Yeah, hmm. um, and then Edith is killed I, in 1840. She's like, oh, they time has been changed does edith come back to life so she was in gerard's slash judah's she was kind of being initiated into into the cult there for maybe she came back from the dead or i don't know i no, i think i think you're you're dealing with a lot of parallel universes because there's a, the a mystery just as vast 
is that when Barnabas and Stokes and Julia arrived back in 1971, uh, uh, Elizabeth speaks to them in a familiar manner, saying, well, it certainly was a boring winter, as if they had experienced it with her. Yeah. So, So just as big a question is, where is that Barnabas and Julia and Stokes? Are yeah. there two sets of them? Or did they just kind of evaporate from reality when the prime inhabitants showed up? Yeah. So the, the thing with Edith, uh, I the easiest, the easiest explanation, well, no, I mean, she's dead. It's a, it's a different timeline. So would Quentin remember things quite the way that he did? Because if, because he would be the one most directly affected mm-hmm. by that. Um, uh, Barnabas, you know, and, and Julia, Julia's an outsider and Barnabas pre-exists all of that. So I think, it, you know, again, if you look at your bad angle like this, there are, there are rationalizations right. uh, for how those things happened. I yeah. Think. Another, another th- what's that? Great Warren Odson. Oh, I loved Warren's, Warren's essays. Yeah so good and that that affected me more than anything else in my thing Same. dark shadows um especially 1840 concordance yep the yep. red one when i was a kid uh and uh that great essay about angelique uh so i think warren yeah that's it yeah. that was my bible for the longest yeah. time because same <laughs> yeah that same here my thinking so much but props to Kathy Rush for this because I I remember the same thing like they didn't they weren't in syndication and this was pre home home video so this was how I experienced that last year of the show same here yeah very grateful for that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but um yeah um you mentioned Barnabas coming back to 1971 that's another thing Warren actually touches on that in his essay as well uh because Barnabas uh what went into the I Ching trance sent his astral self back to 1840 but then in that body walks up the time staircase <laughs> into the present so, so where there are three of him there are three barnabas because there's, that- <laughs> there's three barnabas it's like oh yeah yeah i, I think they, they become a like a comedia dell'arte troupe <laughs> uh, i love it but, but the, the barnabas brothers yeah. uh they uh four if you count julia um and and she's the chico of the group Uh, yeah (laughs) Uh, but but yeah because you've got the one who's in the trance you've got the one who was from 1795 and then you have the one that elizabeth has been talking to and says oh it's such a slow winter you guys need to show up you know you you, got to finish the pot roasting come on or whatever so yeah yeah, who knows how many how many you know you got all these people running around right right Warren's theory was that um, it was similar to what happened in 1897, where the physical body of Barnabas vanished and mer- kind of merged with uh, his past self. And maybe when he walked up the time staircase, you know, somehow he was returned. Everything was set to rights. I I don't know. It's it's that's kind of a, a head scratch. 1840 is a head scratch. That's that whole summer 1970, and then 1840 is just kind of like. Whoa. What, I, I can't figure this out. <laughs> the one who is in the trance becomes Chet Collins, and he's got a redheaded wig. It's real nice. 
and then there's like a, a David Soul hairdo one, <laughs> and that's the one that Elizabeth's been talking to, and that's Barry Collins, <laughs> and they they live together, you know, in the old house, and it's it's they they form a band. It's like the Monkees. It's, it's great. Really great drummer. Maybe they have a like Plus a. Is their manager? He's the Reuben Kincaid. Um, I, one other thing. Okay, just before before we wrap it up, if you have time, I want to talk a little bit about fandom stuff. Like, okay. um, you know, we talked a little bit about you know what the Collinsport Historical Society has done. We talked about uh, some of the stuff with like Kathy with the zines and the, and the uh, uh, concordances. Like, what what do you th- how I f- I find in recent years, and I don't want to go too heavy on this, but I find in recent years there's Dark Shadows feels like it's been on kind of sim on a on simmer mode, you know. Uh, after the 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 Depp movie came out, and um, it just kind of feels like the festivals ended, and it's kind of just been on. I mean, there's still cool stuff happening. Don't get me wrong, but um, how can we bring Dark Shadows to the public eye more, or should we? Is it better that Dark Shadows is kind of this? cool underground thing that the cool kids know about or or is it or is or should dark shadows be more visible in, in public eye well you know this stuff is like evolution you know it's it's going to be as visible as there is cultural demand mm-hmm. and and if there is sufficient cultural demand i think the culture will find it mm-hmm. so if dark shadows is not particularly being found right now it may be because culture doesn't have a really deep innate need that dark shadows is addressing mm-hmm. uh and that's not that's not a, a, a smack against dark shadows at all but you wonder how do these things you know bubble back up into the consciousness some of it is due to someone picking up like mark perry picking up the ball yeah and yeah. running with it as long and hard as they can some of it is someone picking up the ball and fumbling it and the rest of us say look attention must be paid and like with johnny depp and tim burton and so we have to pick it up quite angrily and carry it for a decade uh i i don't really know but i i think keeping it like a oh it's our little secret sort of thing which i don't know anybody who does you know all the dark shadows fans i know are eager to welcome people in so yeah gatekeeping is the last thing we oh, need oh definitely and I yes. I don't see that happening. I see Dark Shadows being very welcoming. It's just, it requires such an investment to get into. Mm-hmm. And thank, thank goodness we have Tubi and we have Amazon. So the excuse of, well, I don't know where to find it is gone. And it's up to us to sort of be, for all Dark Shadows fans, to be ambassadors to Collinwood. And it's an exciting thing to do. Um, I get frustrated when I pick up a book about like the history of, you know, cultural history of of horror in America or uh, history of vampires or something. And it's just, you get to the dark shadow where dark shadows should be. And it just kind of just skips right on over that and keeps on going. And um, I, 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 oh, it gets one sense. Yeah. Or it gets a brief. Can't mention. be soap opera. Yeah. I think, you know, you bring up something important and, and that's this, and that's where something like, the day book is is unintentionally really important. And mm-hmm. and it's this is that if if people have, and I'm not the only one who can do it, if people have the means to pick up something theoretically funny and and pithy and and so on, I'm not saying I do it, but you know, somebody out there, at a book of essays that kind of explain what some of the good stuff is, 
then they're not beholden to watching 450 hours, that they can use this and go to Tubi and say, oh, this was kind of a fun essay. I have an idea of who these people are. Now let me watch this episode. Oh, that was good. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the beauty of of not having to do every Dark Shadows episode, just doing the ones I like. Yeah. Because because you're getting you're getting the station manager. You know, in culture, we don't have the station manager picking the four o'clock movie anymore. We don't have that sense of curators. And so getting back to that by any means necessary, and I think stuff like what you're doing, what Jules doing, um, and and between the shadows and and so on is so vital for that. So I'm, I'm happy to be uh, to be asked to 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 show up for for some of that stuff. It, it's a big honor because I think it's, it is important. And if Dark Shadows is going to be seen as culturally necessary, which I think it always is, uh, it's because of things like this. You know, even if you're if you haven't really watched Dark Shadows or you're Dark Shadows curious, I think the checking out the Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound or the original uh, number here, the Dark Shadows Daybook, is yeah. uh, is certainly uh, a, well worth your time. I think it will uh, enrich your viewing of Dark Shadows. Uh, you know, reading the Daybook entry for that episode after having watched it is a really fun thing to do as well. Uh, so, because it gives you some interesting insights and perspectives on the episode. So I certainly encourage people to pick up the book, either the Kindle version or the hard copy. I have heard from a number of people who were not familiar with the show at all, who really enjoyed uh, the Daybook. And and so especially if you are not familiar with the show, it's it might be a really good ambassador. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Give it a try. It's the sort of thing you don't have to know Dark Shadows to enjoy. Yeah. Awesome. And um, I want to just give one more shout out here. You mentioned uh, some of the podcasts as I did earlier, and I forgot to mention uh, the literary license. You were on that one, too, when they were talking about Dark Shadows. You know, that's That was a, a cool one, too. I think they're wrapping up their Dark Shadows coverage pretty soon, but they also have been doing that for a while. They get a shout out in the first book, and then Colonel Tom gets another shout out in this one. Colonel Tom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I've had him on this podcast, too. We did a, a characters of Thayer David discussion in one of the one of the earlier episodes so. a feast for all five senses <laughs> indeed indeed well uh Patrick thank you so much for uh taking the time to uh sit down and and chat with me about the Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound and folks remember that uh for the next 24 hours Penny Dreadful special is going on so you can pick up the the day book uh, using that code for ninety nine cents. Uh, no, do they have to put in no code? Just show oh. up to Amazon, type in Amazon day book and bound. Oh, oh okay, it's okay. All Americans. I don't know how these these things work. It did. <laughs> Send the Sazy, you know. <laughs> I could eat. Just... <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a culture of that. <laughs> well, folks, uh, if you uh, like watching the podcast instead of listening to it you can watch the special youtube version of this episode uh so there is a video version of this episode as i've been doing lately with several of the episodes so patrick was gracious enough to uh, agree to this video version here so please feel free to hop on over to youtube and watch that or if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast 
please do subscribe. Uh, there are lots of podcast apps out there. Uh, some of the popular ones include Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify. You can subscribe through any of those, Podbean, etc. Are you on Stitcher? I am on Stitcher. Yeah. Stitcher, Tara Collinwood on Stitcher. Uh, subscribe. Uh, do rate and review, please, if you get the chance to do that. Uh, that does help the podcast. And also tell your friends, spread it like the dream curse. Uh, let your friends know about the podcast. Uh, if they like dark shadows or even if they like spooky stuff. I've had, like you with the day book, I've had several people write to me who ha were, are watching dark shadows for the first time and uh, listening to the podcast and sort of getting a you know, when we talk about storylines and stuff, and then just as they're watching that storyline to, to get different perspectives on it. So I really appreciate that too. That's a really cool thing to hear from fans who are getting into it for the first time. So for sure. yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you very much and have a excellent evening. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.